time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Tracy Silverman, and thanks for tuning in to the For the Greater Groove podcast. This is a place where we are going to talk about the future of strings, and in particular, grooving, playing rhythm, because I do believe that is a big part of the future of strings. And today, I'm so looking forward to this, because whenever we get together, we just have the best conversations. Julie Lyon Lieberman is here to drop some knowledge and share some of her wisdom. She is the author of 13 books, six DVDs distributed by Hal Leonard, more than 24 string orchestra scores, dozens, that would be dozens of string orchestra scores on major publishers like Carl Fisher, Alfred Kendor, for instance, and just Again, dozens, over 50 uh, articles written for all the major music magazines, Strings, Strad, Fiddler, and she was also, let's not forget, the editor of my Strumboing Method book, yes, um, and came up with a lot of great ideas and untangled a lot of my syntax for me. Thank you very much, Julie. We could all use an editor in life, right? The artistic director of Strings Without Boundaries, which is a wonderful workshop that's been going on for years. It's going to be this summer. It's going to be virtual again for the second time. Uh, and I'm teaching there as part of it. It's July 8 through 11. Uh, I'll be uh, doing a deep dive session with Julie on the 10th. So don't miss that. Uh, Strings Without Boundaries, where 21st century technique meets tradition, creativity, and style. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's an honor to join you. And we are going to dig into a conversation here about listening and recreating different styles on your instrument. Um, but first, we're going to do uh, our first segment of the show, which is called the Groove Hacker segment. And this is where we take a track and we try to recreate it on our instruments. So uh, for a lot of, you know, uh, especially young string players, you know, they have music that they love. They fall in love with a certain tune or whatever. They want to play it on their instrument. But how? How do we make it not sound classical? All right. Well, I think first each of you has to decide, do you want to be a cover musician or do you want to express your original voice? because that's going to determine how you relate to a track that you fall in love with. So if you want a cover, then you're learning the melody note for note, you're learning the exact rhythms, you're learning the phrasing, and uh, we have lots of examples of string players on YouTube who are doing this, and some of them have made a whole lot of money doing this by choosing very popular pieces of music. I myself, am more oriented toward 
individuality and creativity. And so I will start by listening for the walking beat. First step. How do my feet want to move to this? Mm -hmm. Just that basic walking beat. Out of that, I'm listening for where the emphasis lands to decide what the time signature is because that will influence how I choose to do my own phrasing on my instrument. The tonal center, the tonal map. I don't like to use the word scale uh, because... If you're into world music, it's not going to be a major or minor scale necessarily. Right. And so that wonderful tonal map is a clue as to what you're going to do rhythmically later on because you want to bring out certain notes if you're not just going to do a more of a textural chop type of um, uh, motion on your instrument. And uh, then one of the things us bowed string players neglect when we're listening to a track, our ears go to the melody first and foremost, if they ever leave the melody, because that's how we've been trained. We're a single line mostly. Right. Um, uh, we're single line instrumentalists. And by uh, listening, learning, to listen to the rhythm section. In this case, on the Angola track, the rhythm section is clapping. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that's, we have to train our ears to scan for all the instruments and the role that each instrument plays within that track. In this track, it's, there's a lot of layers to it and it's, the clapping you can hear very distinctly, but there's a lot of other instruments that are buried deep in the mix that it's yeah. harder to determine that. Did you find that, Tracy, when you were listening to this? I did. You know, I found that it was the kind of thing that the more I listened to it, the more I started hearing in there, almost like looking in a pond and seeing layers in there of other stuff that you didn't see at first. Um, maybe we should play a little bit of this track so people can uh, hear what we're what we're speaking about. We have all spent thousands of hours instilling muscle moves into muscle memory. And I find that it's much more useful to us until you learn how to control that and not let muscle memory take over much more useful to sing with the track first whether you're singing the rhythms on a single pitch or um, singing uh, to find the tonal center singing to find uh, the groove yep the inflections what notes pop out within each phrase and yep. which yep. ones pull back yep. this is exactly the same process that i do i i think of it as um 
as an organic way of prioritizing. If you sing something, you can only sing one thing at a time. So you're going to prioritize, is it the bass note? Is it the backbeat? Is it some harmony arpeggiation? How would you basically sing it and then try to recreate your voice? Now, what happens down line is that your muscles stop taking over and and you you begin to uh facilitate what you hear into new moves and grooves on your instrument and that's the ultimate goal that is true artistry by the way yes we do need muscle memory so we don't have to learn how to hold our bow every day when we first get our instrument out and find our notes all over again but once uh once we have that in muscle memory unfortunately whatever style fortunately and unfortunately whatever style each of you has learned primarily for many years whether it's classical or particular fiddle style those muscles are going to want to take over and articulate the way they've been trained for that particular style right so this is a great way to transcend i i think of it as um as like a, a language and your muscle memory is like your fluency I don't have to think about conjugating my verbs right now, you know. Uh, I'm fluent, such as it is, in English. Uh, so that muscle memory of the language gives me the ease to be able to, to speak. But what I say in, those, in this language uh, is up to me. I can create poetry and say something beautiful, or I can just repeat cliches or whatever, or just fall into the same limited vocabulary. Uh, But the idea of having that muscle memory and yet still choosing from that vocabulary more selectively, I think is the, is the key. Beautifully stated. Thank you. So let's see, we were talking about capturing the style, which we said we get to later, but it's all, we have to weave it all in to uh, this piece, Angola. Um, In this particular piece, one of the things I listen to for is ornamentation. Mm -hmm. If there's a string player in it, a boat string player, I'm listening for slurs, surges. How is a single note articulated? In um, Scandinavia, that note is going to surge toward the end of it's however long it's held. Um, is it hit at the beginning? Is it hit a third of the way in? Does it surge midway? I'm listening for all of these different aspects to be able to try to figure out what I can do rhythmically within that. And I want to back up here a little to um, the problem we have about listening. <laughs> Now, Suzuki-trained players learn to listen from the very start. The rest of us who came up through other systems, unless you came up as a fiddler from the very start and and, and engaged in the oral tradition, A-U-R-A-L, we have, I would say, a deficit in terms of how we listen and what we listen to so uh, I, my turning point was uh, I had a radio show on WBAI in New York City. And I was interviewing American composers 
rather selfishly, I would bring people into the studio that I wanted to meet, <laughs> like Meredith sure. Monk and, and all that. You know, but um, Pauline Oliveros, <laughs> when I had her in, she talked about her deep listening institute and her deep listening yes. workshops. And though I never attended one of those, during the interview, I found myself examining my own ears through a magnifying glass and realizing how much stuff was going on in my thinking head that was eclipsing my ears. Mm -hmm. So I suggest, just as a little test for all of you out there, to put your bow on your string and draw a long down bow and a long up bow and see if you can listen without thinking about anything else for the duration of that round trip. And you may be in for a bit of a surprise because there may be a whole lot of chatter that comes up very quickly. So just that simple exercise every day, first as a litmus test, but then after that to develop the ability to absolutely disappear into your ears for the duration mm -hmm. of that round trip bow. And if you start thinking about something else, instead of going, ah, oh, I'm thinking about something else, here I go again, which keeps you from listening. <laughs> yeah, well, just yeah. Just notice and come back. It's, it's, a, it's very similar to a meditation practice or a mindfulness where you just need to be in the moment of that sound. You know, I talk about, uh, uh, in the book, I talk about uh, this sort of listening forwards and listening backwards idea, audiating forward, like hearing the sound in your head before you play it, because as string players, uh, we don't have frets and buttons, we're like singers, we have to audiate it first. But then, in reverse, actually listening to what you just played to see what you're doing, not just what you wish you were doing. Big difference sometimes. Beautifully stated. Yeah, thank you again. So shall we uh, shall we bust out our, our fiddles and see yeah, what, what it sounds like if we try to play absolutely. this thing? Absolutely. So what I hear from the clapping is... So there's a pickup into it, and, the, and it's in 2-4. And so without pitch... So there it is, just straight and simple. Yeah. The clapping. But of course I wanna find my own ideas. I want I don't wanna just echo what the clapping is doing unless I want to use a looper and try to make an arrangement of this mm -hmm. of my own. Right. Where how would you start with this, Tracy? Um, well, so let me listen for a second again. So the first thing I'm I'm gonna uh, do for me naturally, and this kind of is the way I break this stuff down with my GPS for strings thing, is I first just try to sing it, hum it. But, but while I'm doing that, I'm moving my body. Of course, you all on this podcast can't see this, but I am, you know, just kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit. Bum, bum, dum, dum, with the pulse, which is the, you know, the main quarter note. And then there's this clap, da-da, 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 
that but so I've kind of got that physicalized and singing it like that and then I'm thinking about the baseline because that's where you know that's really the other important thing if we're trying to recreate a groove so how do you hear what do you hear as the baseline so it's essentially moving uh two bars in C like a C7 to an F minor, but that F minor is really also kind of an A flat, F minor over an A flat bass sort of vibe. Uh, not to get too deep in the woods with it, but <laughs> basically C7 to F minor. <laughs> All right, so um, we're on the same page there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love I love the the scale that this follows. <laughs> just really a beautiful sound too yeah it's got that lowered two that d flat on the c7 yes i'm i'm a paradiddle person i love to create paradiddles which cool. is um you know uh, symmetrical and asymmetrical string crossing and so i took that c motion and that f minor motion <laughs> Yet nice. another layer that could yep. be create, created over it. One can always arpeggiate on those two chords and get a, another layer of groove over that. Yeah. So let, let's hear what you would do with this, Tracy. Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I have to keep doing this back and forth process when I'm doing this, you know, and listen to it. So I'm just going to refresh my mind right here for a second. Yeah, so I would, um, so the first thing I'm doing is like, boom, ticket. So I'm going to try to sing the whole thing with some rhythm and some bass line at the same time. So it's kind of like, so what's that riff? Um, so it does that like C to the B flat, and then B flat F. A flat, B flat, F, ba, bum, 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 bum. And so what I'm doing is kind of breaking it down to the subdivision and going, while I'm singing it, you listeners at home can't see, I'm moving my hand in the air. I'm kind of strumming in the air, like playing air guitar, like a boom, chicka, 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 that's my hand strumming. And uh, then I'm going to just try to put that on the violin, almost like a train pattern. And then I'm going to try to work in some of that bass line. Bum, 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 bum. And then I'm going to start adding harmony, C7, F minor. Kind of get a groove and like something like that. 
That was but fantastic. then I've got I've got six strings on this, so that makes it a little easier. I was just about to remark. <laughs> I've got a low C and a low F is perfect for this key. <laughs> Couldn't for be easier. For those of you that just drooled over what Tracy did as I've got drool <laughs> rolling down my chin, you can't see me, but that's what's happening. Uh, yeah, you. he's got two advantages on us. <laughs> One, the extra strings. The second... Many, many, many years ago, he did a <laughs> bunch of work with Kaito Makanda. Ah, you, yes, you have. <laughs> when Kaito came to the U.S., he came to my music studio when it was in New York City. No and, kidding, I didn't know yep, that. Yep, and he brought a. He gave me a cassette tape back. This is how long ago this was. Whoa. A cassette tape of stuff that the two of you had done together. And uh, oh my so gosh. your exposure to this music, this style, goes back a long ways. And you can, everybody, you can hear it, right? Oh, that's so sweet of you. You know what? It actually goes even back further than that because when I was a kid, my dad played a lot of Brazilian bossa nova stuff. Not that this is, is Brazilian particularly, but it definitely has that vibe for sure. It has elements of it because of that yeah. rich... Uh, combination of Afro and Latin yes. rhythms. One of the best combos ever. Yep. Which we, of <laughs> course, find in Brazilian music, Cape Verde music, Cuban music. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. And I think it's very interesting how differently we approached it, which is really cool. Yeah. And that's the whole yeah. idea of this is to kind of show how how many ways there are of skinning a cat when it comes to the stuff, you know? Uh, I think it's important to be aware of the different areas of listening. This is a different kind of ear training. But, um, you know, we've already talked about listening for the walking beat, listening, um, finding the time signature out of that because of where the emphasis lands, the tonal center, the tonal map, what's the percussion doing, what's the bass line doing, where are their inflections within the phrase? What kind of ornamentation is used or not? What kind of vibrato or not? Yeah. Uh, what kind of pressure in the left hand? Uh, because you might want to ghost certain notes. Exactly. When, when Richard Green invented chop technique, when he was um, hired by Bill Monroe and was told to hold the rhythm when he wasn't soloing or playing melody, he first thought of rhythm as just a right-hand activity, but later when he realized that he could create a plethora of sounds by modifying pressure in the left hand while he was articulating rhythms in the right hand, right. he created a whole new world of, of sound through that. And then of course there's slides. All of these elements enable us to capture the style instead of making, if you're classically trained, making every new genre you attempt to learn sound like it's classical and say, woo, I'm playing yeah. the blues, whoa. Exactly. <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> you know? Well, this is the heart of the issue, especially, you know, in terms of the future of strings and progressive string playing. Um, it's getting out of that classical box, that classical paradigm, that frame of reference that we're brought up with, which is this is the way the violin or strings are supposed to be played. Um, 
And yes, that's the way it's supposed to be played in that style. But it's very important, I think, and increasingly becoming um, much more common knowledge among string players, especially younger string players who are more uh, connected to the internet and the rest of the world. There are violin traditions in Iran. Uh, they're not called violins necessarily. It's maybe called a kamencha or instrument, you know, um, Indian Carnatic uh, tradition. Um, there are traditions all over the world. Chinese uh, are who almost every culture has a bowed instrument and very few of them sound like, you know, Western classical music. Uh, and that's not because they are worse in any way, right? They are different. And uh, as string players, uh, so many of us learn the classical tradition, but there are lots of other traditions out there that we can all start including in our sounds, especially the ones that are in our own popular culture here in the United States. In fact, there are roughly 35 bowed, major bowed string styles worldwide. If wow. you just take that number in for a moment and think about uh, how our, our string education has been incredibly biased towards Western canon as if yeah. that's the only way to go and the only way to build good technique. Yeah. So, well, this is why I bring you on this show, Julie, to bring all of this amazing wisdom, this this uh, introspective view on, on listening, this these uh, other ways of approaching it, and so that you can play with us our third and final segment of the show, a segment we call Not My Gig. And this is when I ask you questions that have absolutely nothing to do with anything you know about. So, since you are the artistic director of Strings Without Boundaries, we're going to find out how much you know about the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. <laughs> so, your first question. Two, three questions. Get two out of three right, and you win the quiz. Absolutely nothing comes with that, but very weak bragging rights. Okay, multiple choice. The Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, that's actually the official name of it, is in what state? A, Michigan, B, Wisconsin, or C, Minnesota? Wow, and I've worked in all three of those states. Um, I'm going to go with Minnesota. You are absolutely correct. Wow. It is part of the Superior National Forest. All right. So, here's another multiple choice for you. The North Country was inhabited by the Paleo-Indian culture around 8000 BC and then later by the Ojibwe people. Who were the first Europeans, or who was the first European known to have traveled through the Boundary Waters? Was it A, Leif Erikson, B, Lewis and Clark, C, Jacques de Noyon, or D, John Cabot? I'm going to go with Lewis and Clark. That's a good guess, but it's not right. It was the French explorer Jacques de Noyon. He became the first European in 1688 known to have traveled through the Boundary Waters canoe area. That's okay. You've still got one right. 
Okay, and your third question is a true or false. The Boundary Water Canoe Area Wilderness contains the largest remaining area of uncut forest in the eastern portion of the United States. True or false? I'll go with false. It is true. I'm afraid it is actually true. That is the largest remaining area. And it's wow. not all that so I only big. got one out of three, so I don't get that million-dollar check. I'm so... Yes, you get our consolation prize. I'm not sure what that is. What? <laughs> because there's no actual prize. So the consolation prize is one down from nothing. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> the negative one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for including me in your podcast. This has been really fun. This was great, Julie. I'm so glad you were on here. And it's so wonderful to get your insight into all of this progressive string stuff that you have been, uh, you've been fighting this good fight for, I guess, pretty much all your life, as long as I've known you. So, uh, you know, we are all in this community grateful to have your voice uh, and you as a thought leader among us. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Tracy. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on.